Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Podcast number two after the name change. Uh, the music. The music. Lots of controversy about the music. You guys don't come here for the music, do you? I don't know what's going to happen to the music. But uh, all I can say is for the moment, get used to it. And uh, we'll see what happens in the future. Where are we here? Just a little housekeeping. Just did my events with Eric Weinstein in Detroit and Milwaukee, and unfortunately had to cancel the event in Chicago. Apologies for that. We were at the mercy of the polar vortex. It was going to be colder than on the summit of Mount Everest, I believe, with wind chill. So Live Nation pulled the plug on that out of concern for everybody's safety. So we will eventually reschedule and everyone should have been smoothly refunded, and we will be back. Okay. Upcoming events, I've got Boston, D.C., and New York. I'm actually going to bring Eric with me to Boston and D.C. Uh, we had more to talk about. So um, it will be me and Eric Weinstein in Boston and D.C. In New York, uh, as you know, it will be Daniel Kahneman. And I believe there are still tickets left for that. I'm sure that will sell out. So if you're in New York on March 1st and you want to see me talk to Danny Kahneman, you can find tickets through my website at samharris.org forward slash events. And Boston and D.C. are the nights before that. And uh, that's all that's on the calendar at the moment. I, I have not put anything else up. I'm sure something will happen, but nothing on the calendar at the moment. Okay, the Waking Up app. The feedback has been great and incredibly helpful, so please keep the reviews coming. Uh, the reviews are not the best place to report bugs, however. Please do that directly through the website at wakingup.com. Again, the app is under continuous development, and I am looking forward to making it better and better. So uh, please keep the feedback coming. We're aware of a few bugs, especially on Android, and those fixes are being pushed through. So please update the app periodically if you don't have that automatically set, and enjoy. Today I'm speaking with Jack Dorsey. Jack is the CEO of Twitter and Square. We don't spend a lot of time talking about Square. We get into the details of Twitter. We talk about the role that Twitter plays in journalism now how it's different from other social media, how Jack and the rest of his team are attempting to reduce the toxicity on their platform. We talk about what makes conversation healthy, the logic by which Twitter suspends people, uh, the reality of downranking and, quote, shadow banning. I briefly make my case for banning Trump from the platform. We talk about Jack's practice of meditation. Anyway, I must say, I consider this interview a missed opportunity. We really were the casualty of timing here more than anything else because we recorded this conversation a week before the Covington Catholic High School Circus, which, as you know, exemplified more or less everything that's wrong with social media at this moment and Twitter in particular. If you recall, it really seemed in that week that Twitter accomplished something like the ruination of journalism. So that would have been great to talk about, and our silence on that topic will be ringing in your ears. So much of what we talked about with respect to Twitter's policy around 
suspending people and the politics of all that really could have been sharpened up had we had a time machine. We also had this conversation before some other interviews with Jack came out, which I've since read in Rolling Stone. And also he went on Joe Rogan's podcast in the interim. And Joe, as you know, streams everything live. So um, I've seen the aftermath of all that. And Joe reaped a whirlwind of criticism for not having pushed Jack hard enough. I think he's going to have Jack back on his podcast. I'm actually going to be on Joe's podcast later in the week, and I'm sure we'll talk about all this. But all that notwithstanding, I really enjoyed talking to Jack. One thing I want to make clear, because I saw some of the pain that Joe was getting from his audience, many people were alleging that Joe must have agreed not to push Jack on certain points. Uh, I can't speak for Joe, but I, I must say Jack had no restrictions at all on this conversation. He was eager to talk about anything I wanted to raise. There were no edits to it. He didn't request any. So he's totally willing to have a conversation about where Twitter has been and where it's going. You'll hear that he is quite good at pirouetting around any concern a person raises. You'll certainly witness that in this conversation, and, and it was there to be seen in Joe's and in all these subsequent interviews that I've seen. You know, he really does offer a more or less a full mea culpa on many of these points. You talk about how toxic Twitter is, and he fully acknowledges it. You talk about how inscrutable the policy is around banning and how it lacks transparency, and he fully owns that. And so there's really, there's not that much to get from him on those points apart from his stated commitment to fixing all of these problems that he acknowledges. So, you know, I don't know what Joe's going to get out of him on a second pass, but given the time I had this conversation with Jack, I really can't express too much regret, but I, just in light of what's happened in the last few weeks, I would certainly want to turn down the screws a little bit on a few of these points. That said, I really enjoyed the conversation with Jack, and I hope you do too. And now I bring you Jack Dorsey. I'm here with Jack Dorsey. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is an interesting conversation for me to approach because I think we're going to talk about some things that I'm a little concerned you don't want to talk about, and I'll just going to forge ahead. But and if, I want to if, talk about if, everything. Okay. But and then I think we'll get into things that um, areas of mutual interest that, that I think we'll both be very happy to talk about. So let's start with the, the weird stuff and just how difficult your job is, or at least how difficult your job appears to me to be. Obviously, you have two jobs. You've got this dual CEO role with, with Square and Twitter. I don't know very much about Square. I mean, perhaps you can just you can introduce how you think of, of your job there, but I'm, we're going to talk about Twitter almost exclusively. So I just I guess to start, how do you think of your career at this point, and how, how are you managing I, I'm sure this is a question you've gotten a lot, but how are you managing this dual CEO life? A lot of it is, um, is experimenting and learning. All the experiences that I've had at, at both companies have, have definitely formulated how I, I act every day. And I, it's pushed me to focus first on my health. And uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, mental health and just um, how I can uh, 
how I can be aware and productive and observant throughout the day. A big part of that for me has been meditation, which I'm, I would hope to talk to you. Yeah, that, that's what I'm, ho- that's what I'm looking point, forward to talking about. Yeah. So I'll, we'll save that for the end, something yeah. to look forward to. Yeah. Um, but um, First the pain, then the meditation. <laughs> first the pain and observing the pain. But a lot of it has just been, has been doing it. And I, today I, I, I don't really segment the, the parts of my day. It's, it's one job. This is, this is my life. And I know that the companies will benefit and the, and the people that we serve will benefit from me focusing on consistent self-improvement. Mm. And that starts with, that starts with how I think about things. And that starts with like the mindset I bring to my work and that's certainly evolved over the past twitter will be 13 years in march thinking about right. skipping the 13th year like they skip uh-huh. you know, 13 floors and buildings but it'll be 13 years in, in march and, and square will be 10 years old uh this february but uh a, a lot of the the balance between the two is possible one because of the team i've been fortunate enough to assemble and it took some iterations hmm. But also um, how similar they are in different mediums. Twitter is is obviously focused on communication, and our purpose is serving a public conversation. I, we think we're very unique in that regard, and there's a lot of dynamics that are quite powerful, and a lot of dynamics that can be taken advantage of, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Square, on the other hand, is around economic empowerment. And one of the things that we saw early on in 2009 was that people in this country, and certainly this is reflective of the rest of the world, were being left out of the economy because they're being left with access to the slower mediums, like paper cash, while the world was moving on to more digital. And uh, we are serving an underserved audience. We started with sellers. We're now moving to individuals. Um, we have this app called the Cash App, which we have significant percentages of the people using it who were their only bank account. Um, right. And it's been a really powerful um, example of utilizing technology to provide access to people. Uh, and it's needed in so many ways in how we organize our financial lives um, and how people make a living. And, you know, as, as you've talked about on some of your podcasts, these systems have been under a lot of central control in the past. And a lot of that centralized control has removed access from people or not even created the potential to do so. So one of the f- things we found in Square in the early days is the only way you could start accepting credit cards was if you had a good credit score. Mm. And a lot of entrepreneurs who are just getting started, they don't have a good credit score. I didn't have a good credit score when we started Square. I was massively in debt to credit cards, actually. So by shifting that, using better technology, making it more inclusive, we were able to serve a lot more people that the industry just wasn't able to. So you've got these two massive companies, which at least from the the public-facing view seem diametrically opposed in in the level of controversy they 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 bring to the world and to your life presumably <clears throat> I mean square is a it seems like a very straightforward successful noble pursuit which about which I can't imagine there's a lot of controversy I'm, I'm sure there's some that that I haven't noticed but it must be nothing like what you're dealing with with Twitter how are you 
triaging the needs of a a big company that is just functioning like a normal big company and twitter which is something which you know on any given day can be just fr- you know front page news everywhere given how given the the sense of either how it's helping the world i mean the, the thing that's amazing about twitter is that it's clear it's enabling you know, revolutions that we might want to support right or the empowerment of dissidents and I mean, there's just this one you know saudi teenager uh, who was you know tweeting from a, a hotel room in the Bangkok airport that her she was worried that her her parents would kill her and I don't think it's too much to say that Twitter may have saved her life in that case I'm sure there are many other cases like this where you know, she got she was granted asylum in, in Canada and so and these these stories become front page news and then the antithetical story becomes front page news so we know that you know ISIS recruits terrorists on Twitter or their fears that misinformation spread there undermines democracy. And we'll get to Trump. But how do you deal with being a normal CEO and being a CEO in this other channel, which is anything but normal? Well, I, both companies and both spaces that they create in have their own share of controversy. But I find that in the financial realm, it's a lot more private. Mm. Whereas with communication, it has to be open. And I would prefer them both to be out in the open. I would prefer to work more in public. I'm fascinated by this idea of, of being able to, to work in public, make decisions in public, make mistakes in public. And I get there because of my childhood. I was, I was a huge fan of punk rock back in the day, and then that transitioned to hip hop. And that led me to a lot of open source where people would just get up on stage and do their thing and they were terrible and you saw them a month later and they were a little bit better and then a month later they're a little bit better and we see the same thing with open source which led me to technology ultimately but so i i approach it with with that understanding of that you know we're not here just to make one single statement that stands the test of time that our medium at twitter is conversation and conversation evolves and Ideally, it evolves in a way that uh, we all learn from it. There's not a lot of people in the world today that would walk away from Twitter saying, oh, I, I learned something, but that would be my goal. Mm. And we need to figure out what element of the service and what element of the product we need to bolster or increase or, or change in order to do that. So I guess in my role of CEO of Twitter, it's, how do I lead this company in the open, realizing that we're going to take a lot of bruises along the way, but in the long term, what we get out of that ideally is is earning some trust. Mm-hmm. And we're not there yet, but that's the intention. Well, on the, on the topic of um, I learned something, actually, that's, this is one of my, this is actually the only idea that I've ever had for improving Twitter which is to have a, in addition to a, a like button, this changed my mind button, or I learned something mm-hmm. button, so, mm-hmm. that, so that you can track. I mean, one, it would just kind of instantiate a new norm where people tweeting would aspire to have that effect on people. Like, like this is it's actually about dialogue. It's about debate. So I give that to you. You can do with what... Actually, really? I had one other recommendation to you. <laughs> to, to deplatform the president of the United States, which I noticed you haven't <laughs> taken me up on. 
One of the one of the ideas we we had uh, way back in the day um, there was instead of a we had a the the button was actually called favorite before it was called like mm-hmm. we transitioned to like I, I think at one of our most reactive phases within the company we were drafting from a known behavior that you saw on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot but we were going to we, there was a proposal to change it to thanks which I like a lot. I, I think mm. it kind of gets at some of the, the things you're trying to express to the degree to which you're influencing someone's thinking or you're changing someone's mind uh, is another level. But to build a service that people can express gratitude for things they find valuable more directly instead of the emptiness of a like button is something that we are thinking a lot about right now. Right. The okay. incentives are where we are in the conversation. We realize that what we need to do is not going to be done by changing policy. What we need to do is look fundamentally at the mechanics of the service mm. that we haven't looked at in 12 years. The, the fact that we have one action to follow and it's following accounts. And following accounts in the example of Brexit, for example, if you followed a bunch of accounts that were spouting off reasons to, to leave, that's all you get. You have right. no other ability to see another perspective of the conversation unless you did the work to follow the account of someone who was opposed to that view. Whereas we do have the infrastructure in the service right now in the form of search and trends. And if you were to follow the vote leave trend, 95% of the conversation would be reasons to leave, but 5% would be some considerations to make to stay. Mm-hmm. But we don't make it easy for anyone to do that, and therefore no one does it. So these are exactly the things we're looking at in terms of, like, is like really the thing that helps contribution back to the global conversation? My own personal view is that it doesn't. My own personal view is it's empty, and it's a lot more destructive than, than what we considered it to be by well, you know, everyone knows how to take this action, so we should put it on our, our service as well. As you were talking, it made me think you could have a kind of dashboard that showed people how siloed they were in terms of, mm-hmm. kind of partisan information. Like, if, like if, if people may not know that they're getting only one side of a story. Well, we, we actually saw that in the 2016 elections. We did some research of the connections. We, we've been spending a lot more time not looking at the content that people are saying, but the behaviors and the connections between accounts and uh, interactions and replies. And one of the things that was, that was very evident during the lead up to the election was the, um, just looking at our journalist constituency, which was one of the most important, is one of the most important constituencies on Twitter to my mind. Yeah. The amount of journalists on the left who were following folks on the right end of the spectrum was very, very small. The amount of journalists on the right end of the spectrum following folks on the left was extremely high. That's interesting. It was, even it was just inter- that factoid is, is yeah. worth getting out there. Yeah. There's, a, there's a good graphic that uh, a, an MIT lab um, called Cortico put out that illustrates this effect, and you can immediately see what happened, at least in the media sphere, in terms of these these uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers that we tend to create. But that is something that I, I do 
take a lot of responsibility around. We have definitely helped to create these isolated chambers of, of thought. Mm. And it's because of the mechanics of how our system works. J just the simplest thing of emphasizing the follower account, only allowing the following of an account versus an interest, a topic, or a conversation. These are the things that don't allow any fluidity and uh, evolution. It's very, very rigid. And you mm. have to do a lot of work to get to some of the fluidity that we that we know Twitter is, but you you have to be an expert to understand that it's even possible. Right. Well, yeah. So you were talking about the different constituencies on it, and that that's one thing that makes Twitter unique. That it, it really seems like the platform where real journalists and real intellectuals and newsmakers they're relying on it for conversation. I mean, they're relying on both as a kind of a real time response to things that are happening in the world and as a way of just divulging things that are happening in the world and a way of sharing their opinions. And in that sense, it seems completely unlike every other social media platform to me. And I mean, so I have this, this love-hate relationship, as many people do with Twitter. I have a, just a hate-hate relationship with all the other social media platforms. I mean, I just, I've never been tempted to use them. Well, at least we're halfway there. Yes, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> But Twitter, you know, I, I keep, I step away from, and we can talk about just how you, even how you relate to Twitter as, you know, psychologically, but the idea of not being on it just seems like a non-starter now because it is, it's almost like a public utility. It really is just the, it is the one place where you can, you are, you're guaranteed to see a response to news events that you have curated and it can be as good, really, or as informative as you've curated it. What do you think accounts for the adoption of Twitter by those groups? And I mean, it's just integrated into, like, like even television news has to use Twitter to sort of leverage the conversation about what they're putting out. And they don't, they don't do that with Instagram or, or uh, Facebook. Is it, is it just the short form? What, what made Twitter so <laughs> sticky in the beginning? Was it the 140 characters? I think it's a few things. I, I think I, I don't believe we're a social network. Social things happen on us, but my definition of a social network would be one that is dependent upon the people that you know, you know, the, the graph of your past or your, your current career or your future aspirations in terms of who you want to work with or who you want to be with or whatnot. And mm -hmm. we don't benefit from the address book in your phone. We benefit from more of an interest base network. We benefit because you're interested in something. And because of that, there's no deliberate join or leave of any one particular community. Simply talking about a topic puts you in it. Mm. And the whole dynamic of Twitter enables that. And that's extremely powerful, but it's also extremely complex for people. And I think one of the reasons why journalists took to it so quickly is because it serves as this, it's certainly a, a marketplace of ideas. It certainly has, you know, people have similar expectations as they would a public square um, where ideas are discussed and evolved and debated. So it takes on a lot of characteristics of that because of the, the dynamic of it, because of the real-time nature, because of the public nature. But I think it serves as an as this um, in between the articles function, and you know we had journalists write article 
broadcast it with Twitter and then get into a conversation to get more perspectives, get different ideas, make corrections, make clarifications. But then we also noticed something really interesting is that it really unlocked the journalists from their publication. So I've watched in the, in the, in the nearly 13 years, journalists that I follow go from a smaller blog to a BuzzFeed to a New York Times to another institution. And it became interesting to just follow them as a per- person rather than, than the publication that they work for. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that felt very freeing to a number of the journalists I've talked to about it. It, it wasn't about the fact that I'm at the New York Times. It was the fact that I'm doing great investigative journalism and I have a direct connection with my readers. And uh, my sources, and, and, and maybe even sources that I didn't know were going to be sources um, yeah. because of the openness, because of the public nature of the service. So I think that was a big part. The constraint has had other ramifications. We were really big with comedians. That was a, mm-hmm. that was a big wave, I think, because of the rhythmic nature of the constraint. Mm-hmm. Really big with the hip-hop community for the exact same re- reasons. We don't see as many poets this day and age, but it's anyone with like a poetic poets. It would have been great for poets. But it also, to the negative, created more of a headline, outrage, Mm -hmm. fast take kind of approach and culture. And the, you know, expansion to 280 has helped with that. We haven't seen a decrease or, or we haven't seen an increase in when you send an organic tweet out just as a broadcast. People typically don't go over the 140 character original constraint, mm-hmm. but when they reply to someone else, they do. And that's oh. where the 280 really matters is because it allows for a little bit more nuance. And those are the sorts of things we're, we're looking at. But I, the, the journalists, I, I believe, were, were using it as a, as a way to exist in between their, their work and also to have conversations with their peers about what's interesting. And there's some positives and negatives to that. What, what's the philosophy around not letting people edit tweets? Um, so now that I have you here, I'm just going to just download all my customer service complaints. When I, when I type a typo and discover it six hours later, why can't I correct that typo? It's going to sound like a really boring answer, but I'm going to give you the context for it. So we were born um, on SMS. We were born on text messaging. Mm. And you could view Twitter as, what if you could text with the world? What if you could have a text conversation with the entire world Mm. with a text you can't correct once it's sent it's sent it's gone and you build on top of it you evolve it you carry on the conversation we uh obviously we're not limited by that but we built our system so that when you send a tweet it immediately starts fanning it out so as soon as you send that a lot of the potential damage is done so for us to introduce that edit, and this, these are things that we're looking at. These are things that we're, we're considering and whatnot. But for us to introduce edit for a common use case of, I made a mistake, I need to fix a link because I sent out the wrong one, it adds a delay into the system. And that's good in some context. For a lot of the things that, that you tweet about, it's, it's probably what you want. But, you know, there's, there's all these Twitters. There's, you know... Your Twitter, and which you've built by following who you follow, there's politics Twitter, which is a very, very different experience this day and age. Mm. There's NBA Twitter, which is super exciting, but very real time. 
and people use it while they're watching the game and it becomes the roar of the crowd. So even a 30 second delay in a tweet is, is meaningful. Mm -hmm. So that's a consideration we need to make. We need to make another consideration for another use case people want in that you might tweet something, you want to go back to it a week later and correct something. But meanwhile, people have retweeted it and it might be a point of view that you've taken on and they've retweeted that point of view. And then you decide to do something a little bit devious and you change the point of view. So they have then tweeted something that you've completely changed the message upon. Mm -hmm. So that requires a change log or some notification that this tweet has changed substantially and he might be saying something that you don't agree with anymore. Right. So it's easy to see how people could game that. You could have somebody who tweets something very sticky and innocuous uh, and then they flip it to, you know, the, the, yep. the next uh, yep. neo-Nazi meme that they, yes. they want spread. Yeah, exactly. And and then the final use case we're looking at is clarifications. And and that is, you know, this this current moment where people are digging up tweets from 10 years ago or five years ago and um, canceling the original tweeter and, mm -hmm. you know, canceling their career or canceling various aspects of their life. And we don't offer a ability for people to go back and say, well, let me clarify what I meant. And we do believe that's important and we do believe we can help address it, but it just takes some work. But the reason why it's taken us so long is because the majority of our systems are built in this real-time mindset with a real-time fan out. And we just want to be very deliberate about how we're solving these use cases and not just stop it, we need an edit button. Like, mm. What are people actually trying to do? And let's solve that problem. Okay, so let, let's push into some of the areas of controversy here because you know, it seems to me you have an extremely hard job and, and I, so it's hard to imagine how you can actually get it right. Actually do it so well that you won't continuously have this ambient level of criticism about how you're doing it. So, and the job is to figure out how to get a handle on the, the toxicity on your platform. So, and it, this has so many forms, one could scarcely list them all, but from, you know, trolling to harassing to conspiracy theories and misinformation and lies to doxing to what is generally called hate speech, but it is speech that is in the political context protected by the First Amendment, at least in the, in the United States, but you have a global platform subject to different laws in different countries. How are you trying to deal with this problem? And, and I mean, you can feel free to grab any specific strand yeah. of that. I'll, I'll start by saying that um, the problem is more amplified in particular parts of Twitter. It, it is definitely the case that it is rampant in politics Twitter. And it it comes with a lot of a lot of patterns which we're now starting to see be more consistent. So first and foremost, just to take it up a few notches, we we asked we were asked a question some time ago. Uh, what if you could measure the health of conversation? Could you measure the health of conversation mm. in the same way that you can measure the health of you know the human body? And we thought that was a very intriguing question because we've all had conversations where we felt it to be just completely toxic. And the result of that is ideally we walk away from it. And we've also had conversations that feel empowering that we learn something from and we want to stay in it. 
And we actually see this digitally as well. We see people walk away from conversations on Twitter. And we see people stay in conversations and persist them on Twitter. And we can, we're, we're to the point where we can, we can actually see it in our numbers and measure it. So we went a little bit deeper with that, and um, and this must be algorithmic, right? We're not talking about individuals tracking. It's not algorithmic, but then checked by by people as right. well, just to verify like the our models are are working. We took it a step further, and um, so so what is what is health? Health is has indicators like your your body has an indicator of health, which is your temperature, and. Um, your, your temperature indicates whether your system more or less is in balance. If it's above 90.6, then something is wrong. And we need to figure out what the measurement tools are to figure out what that measurement is, what that mm -hmm. metric is, which is in, in this case, the thermometer. And then, you know, we, we go down the line and as we develop solutions, we can, we can see what effect they have on it. So we've been thinking about this problem in terms of what we're calling conversational health. And we're, we're at the phase right now where we're trying to figure out the right indicators of conversational health. And mm -hmm. we have four placeholders. The first is shared attention. So what percentage of the conversation is attentive to the same thing versus uh, disparate? The second is shared reality. So this is not determining what facts are facts, but what percentage of the conversation are sharing the same facts. The third is receptivity. So this is where we measure toxicity um, and people's desire to walk away from something. And the fourth is variety of perspective. And what we wanna do is, is get readings on all of these things and then understanding that we're not going to optimize for one. We, 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 we wanna try to keep everything in, in balance. And by increasing one, it probably has a negative effect on another. So you could, increase the variety of perspective but decrease the shared reality in right. doing so so step one is getting a sense of what the current state is through through measurement and um, a lot of that we intend to do through um, algorithms measuring how people talk uh, and and then of course humans pairing with that to make decisions around solutions and you know in the same way that like you're you might be sick and i will offer you a you know this bottle of water and also offer you a glass of wine based on all of our experience if you reach for the water and you drink the water you, there's more probability that you limit the amount of time that your system is out of balance and you're you're not healthy if you choose the wine you'll probably increase the time it takes so how would we think about giving people more options to at least drive towards more conversational health. So that's the abstract level. At a tangible, practical level. If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free, and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.